Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, today's episode is with Sammy Shah. Um, really excited to talk to Sammy, someone I'd admired uh, from afar, Shah from afar, uh, for a little while. And uh, we got the opportunity to meet and have a bit of a catch up and a yarn uh, for about an hour before we recorded this podcast. And then we got into it. So uh, this is me getting to know him as much as it's you guys getting to know him. In fact, many people listening to this might know him better than I did when I started doing the podcast, but I loved it. Um, I thought he was absolutely amazing, and I hope you're going to enjoy it too. I'm doing my Legal show. Uh, it's the show I'm most proud of that I've ever done at the Sydney Opera House, October 13th. I'm doing two shows at the concert hall. Justin Hamilton's doing support, and uh, come along. It'll be unreal. Uh, there you go. I'm going to keep it really tight this week. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, which is apparently now how I start the podcast. I didn't mean it. I wish I'd sat down and come up with some sort of clever catchphrase or some witty opening that sort of explained you know, the philosophy of the podcast, but I haven't. I just say my name unnecessarily uh, many times and I can never look my guests directly in the eye as I'm doing it because it feels a little self-conscious but anyway this is how the podcast actually starts hello guest who are you oh my name is Sammy Shah and I am a comedian and writer and broadcaster ah. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah there that says everything <laughs> Uh, I won't dig too deeply into that, Sammy, because we had had a private conversation before this started that just, that is a quite hilarious way of describing yourself based on the conversation that we just had. Is that thing you're like, I am a master of my own emotions. Nope, just wear them like right up there on my forehead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you a person who wears your emotions publicly? Like, how would you actually describe yourself in that regard? Are you a person who keeps how you're feeling, your inner turmoil inside, or do you wear your, you know, how you're feeling on your face? I think the, the inner turmoil is, you, is confined to just one or two locations. It's very, very, most of the public persona is, even in private conversation with friends, family, everyone, there it is a persona that is more, um, things are good, everything's okay, don't worry about it. If there's ever any inner turmoil, honestly, the only place where it comes out now with the therapist, which I started doing very recently for the first time. But other than that, it was just the stage. It was always just gigs. And I used to tell people, like, if you want to know what a comedian is thinking, go watch him do comedy. It's in what he says and what he doesn't say that you'll find out the truth because it's when we're off stage that we're lying. It's so... Uh, interesting what you say there. Okay, so I've got a couple of things. We'll come back to therapy. Yeah, I wanna, yeah, I wanna, yeah sure. I want to start with the stand-up. <laughs> um, I've, I've often thought that the only way to make money out of podcasts is actually start charging people to do this podcast. Yeah. There's a couch there. You could lie down and I yeah. could ask you questions about your life. At the end, you'd give me $120 and I'd finally find a way to make podcasting financially <laughs> yeah. viable. If you bulk bill, I'm totally up for that. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I have yeah, to get yeah. Yeah, people bring in their Medicard, Medicare yeah. details. <laughs> Uh, so on stage and the honesty of being on stage mm-hmm. is an interesting topic to me because I do think that I like going to open mic and, and a lot of the reason I like going to see open mic is I think that often comedians are at their most honest when they start mm-hmm. and then about seven or eight years in, but there is a period of time 
in that sort of, you know, so what you basically do is at the, at the start, you don't know how to hide who you are. Yeah. So a lot of people who get up there on stage, you're just seeing all their neuroses, all their fears, <laughs> all their passions, and they're often bursting out of them in ways that they don't even understand on stage. And then after you've done it for a while, you learn some techniques to control that and what side of your personality that you want to present to the audience. And you actually build up a fake persona almost for a while. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully you get to the point where you can knock some of the edges off that and get truly honest again. Now, that's just something I think about a bit. Uh, in your journey of stand-up comedy, yeah. how did you feel about how honest you were when you first started versus how honest you are now? And tell me about... You know, the yeah. journey of that. All right. So the first gig I ever did as a stand-up comedian was, um, it, it was an hour show um, in Pakistan. Um, I'd never done stand-up comedy before. I knew I wanted to do it. So I spent six months just listening to Jay Seinfeld and, um, and a lot of that, that, that kind of uh, classic, all the big names. But I really focused and zeroed in on Seinfeld because I like structure in, in a joke. I like, I'm obsessed with structure. And his structures were always beautiful to me. And so I started doing that. And my first show, like now, when I, if I ever watch a clip of it, if, if I'm in a hostage situation and someone forces me to watch that, it's such... I, mean, I would love to know. Yeah. I'd love to interview the hostage taker in that situation where we go, we've got to break him. And we've worked out the best possible way to do that is to play him some of his early stand-up comedy. First question, why are his pants flared? It was 2005. No one was doing that. Little questions like that can be asked. But... Um, it was very much me doing a Pakistani Seinfeld impression. It's like me using the structure of Seinfeld and the observational techniques and applying it to Pakistani life and kind of doing that. And so none of it was very much actually me. Um, the second show, I, and the problem in Pakistan was you could do one show a year because you did one show and your entire audience came. So I did one show, 500 people. The 500 people who knew what English stand-up comedy was and were interested and then they'd seen it. And then that was it. So now I had to write a whole new show for the next year so that they can come back. And wow. it's, yeah, so I did like, so the second show I was going to do was that. It was another one of those. It was all family-friendly material, no cursing, nothing grungy or anything like that. And, that. and was that a choice on your behalf or that was just the way that it had to be to be able to be? I just figured, well, I just figured that's what, you know, Seinfeld does. Right. And and I kind of heard that thing of like, oh, um, I think it was a Larry David joke or, or, or a Seinfeld line, which was like, a fuck is a shortcut to the punchline. Yep. And then, you know, it's more an adventure to take the long way around. And I was like, I respect that. I follow that ethos. And then I finally kind of got around to, so I was going to do the second show, same thing, whole hour set up and everything. And a week before the show was going to happen, there was a suicide attack in Karachi. This used to happen all the time. This is like 2006, the terror attacks constantly. I was working as a journalist and I was at the site when one of them went off. Um, and I spent like a whole night dealing with the debris of the dead and all that. And, and a week after that was my show. And this was a thing that used to happen. You'd book a night to do comedy. You'd book the venue, you'd book the auditorium, sell tickets. Terror attack would happen the day before or a week before and you'd be like, I can't do the show. You'd cancel it, shift the date a month ahead and again and again and again. And this time I was like, okay, I got to... Literally while I'm standing there among, like with dead bodies all around everything and I'm interviewing people, I was like, I'm going to have to shift the show again, which is obviously a narcissistic thing to be thinking of in that situation, but that's who I am. And... <laughs> and right away, like literally, I'm just worried about ticket sales at that point, you know. 
And oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, that's just an inside the psyche of yeah. a stand-up comedian. <laughs> like, I mean, the thing that gets you on stage in front of a room full of strangers thinking, hey, um, I think that I'm just better at talking than you guys. <laughs> and my so, ideas are so interesting. <laughs> you must not pay money to hear them. Right. Um, and so, the, like, I was like, I'll cancel the show. And then a part of me is like, nah, I'm done canceling the shows. I'm done moving them forward. And, and I'm like, I'm just going to do the show. I don't care. And then the show didn't match the mood I was in. And so I kind of tossed the show out and rewrote the show entirely and then went up on stage and did that. And that was the worst hour of stand-up I've ever done. But it was also the first time when I figured out how to be me on stage, which is, oh, I like talking about politics. I like talking about the shitty things terrorists do, about religion and how it's affecting our lives and all that and how, you know, it's it's okay to not say we'll be all right and all of those issues. And I was like, I will talk about them. And that was like the first time the honesty kind of came. And after that, I think I was being very, I've been very consistent with being honest on stage. Um, I'd have those moments where like sometimes I'd just be like, I don't have a bit. I have a premise. I'll just go on. It's a Perth comedy club and, you know, there's seven drunk people in the audience or whatever. But I'll just talk and I'll find it. And if I'm just honest enough, I'll probably find something worthwhile. So I kind of developed that philosophy early on only because I had to out of necessity. Um, it's only recently been where that thing of like, oh, I have audiences who don't know me. Maybe I should be more general and broad. What if that way they'll be, I'll be gentler to them? And then they come and I try it and it doesn't work because that's not me. So they're not laughing. I'm unhappy. Then I'll snap halfway through the show and yell at them for not laughing at a joke that wasn't funny in the first place. And that's the most honest part of the show. So like, yeah, I'm still figuring out how to maybe express it in the best ways but at least i'm i'm trying to constantly do that in it's, an it's way. a very interesting question that one um i remember the first tv appearance i ever did doing stand-up was a a, a reboot of a brilliant show there used mm-hmm. to be a show uh, i think it was called in melbourne tonight so historically it was one of the greatest tonight shows of all time but they'd done a sort of modern day reboot with a guy called frankie j holden who's like an all-round entertainer and yeah um I was doing stand-up on the show and beforehand they, you know, uh, the best advice that I got, cause I was like, Oh, this is a pretty general audience, you know? And my stuff was not really that, you yeah. know? And I said, Oh, I'll just do my most general stuff. And somebody said to me beforehand, they said, no, 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 do your stuff. They said, there'll be some people at home who will not like it and they'll go, I'll never go and see you. And, and they said, that's good because if they did come and see you, and you do what you normally do in that room, then they'd they, hate it yeah, anyway. Yeah. So they might as well make that decision while they're in the comfort of their homes and yeah, not yeah. make the mistake of like, you know, they can kind of just dispassionately not like you from home. They're really not going to like you if they've, you know, got a babysitter <laughs> yeah, and had to pay for parking. And and yeah, like, exactly, yeah, then yeah, they can fuck, really yeah. <laughs> personally hate you, you know, up close where yeah. you can see them. <laughs> that, was a, that was like the, the revelatory bit in like a Stuart Lee interview. I think he, said, he did this on the Mark Maron podcast ages back. Like the, the only way I learned about stand-up comedy and the culture of it was by listening to podcasts when I was in Pakistan. So it was like Mark Maron, Never Not Funny, like one of the, you know, these two, three podcasts. And and Stuart Lee said, when audiences don't like him, all he can do to them is apologize. He's like, I'm really sorry. I know you got a babysitter. You went out, you bought drinks, you bought dinner, you paid money for my ticket. And I'm not what you need or want. And I, I can't offer anything else. And I'm really sorry about that. I genuinely am. And like, I was like, oh, that's, that, that's true. Like, 
you know, it's not their fault and it's not mine. And it's just, you know, it's just how it is sometimes. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you could go to the best Italian restaurant in the world, but if you don't like pasta. Yeah. yeah it's not going to taste good. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're going to be sitting there the whole time going, I wish I had fish or whatever it is you wanted, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, it's interesting to me the way you learnt about stand-up comedy, though, because I grew up in an era where there were no uh podcasts there were no you know the only way you could learn about stand-up comedy you know it's this is pre-internet so i couldn't google articles or see what other people thought um much of what you learned about it was from listening to the very few things that you could find and it's funny you probably (laughs) would have seen recently there were some old school australian comedians kevin bloody wilson and ostentatious (laughs) and a few others who uh you know were in the news recently because apparently political correctness is uh, gone mad and ruining comedy yeah yeah, of course yeah yeah and uh, they were basically the only things you could really get on tape, on cassette. So you'd listen to that sort of comedy and, you know, Bill Cosby, which, you yeah, know. in retrospect, right? sure. <laughs> yeah, terrible. <laughs> yeah. Still have a few of those cassettes <laughs> around the house somewhere that I don't want anyone to Hidden find. now, yeah. So I had to learn a lot of the time by experimentation. You'd watch other people live, you'd try stuff yourself and you'd get it wrong or right and you'd learn. But you never really got to hear about you know, people talking about what it's like to bomb or people talking about how to construct a joke or all these sort of things. So what I'm interested in is that like difference in growing up in a world where that was almost the only way you could learn about stand-up comedy. I couldn't see see live shows. We didn't have that. Um, Pakistani comedy uh, exists, but it's more sketch-based. And that's kind of where the structure of that goes. And it's a long tradition of that. Um, so for me, I, the only stand-up comedy I ever saw, there was a VHS tape of uh, Eddie Murphy's Raw, mm. which in Pakistan for some reason appeared and became a hit in one generation, which was my generation. So we all knew Goonie Goo Goo by heart, right. and that's about it. Um, and, and so that was there. Other than that, you just kind of just decided to get into it one day. And, and I, I just decided, I think I randomly downloaded a Dane Cook album it was like one of his first ones and and i you know i hadn't heard stand up in ages other than the goonie goo goo bit and i was like oh this is really great so i decided looking for more stuff and i came across it was called a special thing.com it was a message forum online and it was where back then this is 2002 2003 a lot of comedians hung out Patton Oswalt wasn't famous enough then, so he hung out there, and Jimmy Paro was there, and and you know Dave Anthony was there, and all these guys used to hang out at the forum and comment with people and talk to people and get answer questions. So like when I started out, I just randomly emailed Patton Oswalt one day. Now it's before my first ever gig. I was like, hey, how do I do stand up comedy? And he's like, just do sta- get stage time. Doesn't matter what you do, I can give you no advice better than get stage time. So I started just. I, there was no open mic, so I set up an open mic and did seven minutes at an open mic amongst poets and guitarists, you know, just little things like that. And, but the cool thing was they could walk you through the structure of their bits. So you could see the, the director's commentary off a bit suddenly. And like, I really think that helped myself. Like it helped me a lot. And I'm sure a lot of other people of my generation, because we were not just privy to the bit, but the philosophy behind the bit, how each comedian approaches the bit and things like that. And so you got to choose and pick and the techniques that work and try some of that out as well. Um, and it's funny, Kevin Bloody Wilson, by the way, because uh, I lived in a country town in WA for four years because of visa requirement. And I used to just gig in country towns. Every year I just go book gigs all across WA and just go from town to town to town. And it coincidentally happened for two years that he and I 
we're doing the same towns at the same time. So we'd turn up at the same town, same time. 90% of the town would go to Kevin Bloody Wilson and 10% would come to the library where I was. <laughs> and, I, and it's probably continue. fair to say at that stage, there was no one who was like, damn, I wanted to go to both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, we had no audience overlap. I, all I would hear from my audiences was, and this is like Burakopin, population 183 or whatever, you know, it's just like, oh, he's over there. He's really racist. Yeah. Like, and it, you know, if WA country towns are like, you're really racist, you're really fucking racist. Like that's, so that was like the, my overlap with him, but... Yeah, I don't know. I've had I've had a weird journey with it for sure. Um, what did you think when this recent, you know, I mean, it happens regularly mm-hmm. with comedy, uh, but to see these old school guys, you know, talk about this idea that you know the fact that you can't, you know, do the sort of racial stuff that they were famous for, or the sexual sexist yeah. stuff yeah. that they were famous for and that that somehow is a reflection a bad reflection on the society that we live in i just am interested in like what are your thoughts on that around that (laughs) issue and that topic okay firstly i think they can do that like it's that thing of like in australia you know every now and then you get messages on radio or whatever or someone says oh it's political correctness gone mad you can't say anything these days I'm like, where are you living? Like, I have heard the most (laughs) heinous shit on a casual basis all the time. Everywhere. Everywhere. Like, in the best cities of suburbs of Melbourne to, like, a small town in the outback. Like, I've heard some things that really, I was like, no. No one outside of the Mississippi burning movie should be using that language. But it's it's happening. Well, even just in the, like, you know, the 50-50 in the Herald Sun or whatever, where they're like, you can't say anything anymore. I'm like, just read the letter above you. And, and the letter I'll, below yeah, you. Exactly. And I think you'll find you can still say whatever the fuck you like. So there's no, I don't know who's censoring them. I think what their gripe is, is there's a belief that they can't say anything. And the gigs that maybe in Melbourne and Sydney that they used to be able to say everything in there, they can't say it. There's still parts of Australia where they can go and be celebrated. So there's that. But also it's, it's not true. You can still say anything. The problem is people are a little bored with those jokes now. So look, there I've been to audiences where, you know, if you do a, a very, very horrific racist joke about an indigenous person, people will still laugh because there is that level of racism still. But the difference is that now you can also make a joke about a white guy. And no one was doing that before. There was no looking inward. So now if I make a joke about a white guy, they're like, whoa, whoa, where's this coming from? This is not, we haven't heard this. This is not on. And it's, is the same as the Black Lives Matter thing, right? So if someone says Black Lives Matter, the, a large section of the audience says, oh, wait, you mean only Black Lives Matter? No, 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 all lives matter. And they're not understanding that no one's saying all lives don't matter. We're just saying Black Lives also matter. So it's the same thing here where it's like, if I make a joke about a white guy, I'm not saying don't make jokes about anyone else. I'm saying I can also not make a joke about a white guy, but they see it as all of a sudden everything else has been cut off. And it's just, it's because it's a lack of empathy or apathy or just, I don't know, intelligence. I haven't met them, but they don't sound like their bits were very well thought out. I, I think that, I mean, we're talking butt of the joke for, yeah. for a start, right? Like, I mean, you can still you know, tell a joke that pricks and audiences. I mean, there's nothing worse than a comedian. And, you know, look, it's something that yeah, you have to be careful about when you have an audience who likes what you do to not be just preaching to the choir yeah, in that absolutely. regard, to say something that is still provocative to them or that, you know, makes them uh, uncomfortable for a minute to, you know, yeah. to make sure that they're engaged with what it is that you're saying. Um, or to say something that is just by the the thing, reason it's funny is that it is so intentionally 
provocative that it's funny. I think to take it out of that world of, you know, the 90s stand-up comedians into the broader world of stand-up comedy, I do think, and I laugh about this a lot, yeah. because for people who are very good at dishing it out, we are terrible at taking oh, yeah. it. We, are we have thin skin. Thin We've skin. got the thinnest skin. Because what it is, we only do comedy because our skin is so thin, it's a bundle of nerves exposed to the wind, and we just get every single bruise. That's where, that's where the comedy comes from. You don't get this way if you're insensitive, you know. Right. So yeah. the second thing is, I think that we've gone, and you t- touched on it very well, which is this idea of you can say whatever you want. We just live in a world now where somebody might complain about what you've said. Yeah. Now, you can either stand by what you said and go, well, you complain, but you, that's your, it's my right to say what I say. Yeah. It's your right to complain about what I say. I mean, I had it last year. I had a huge routine in my show about uh, anti-vaxxers. And, you know, there is a crossover percentage of my inner city latte yeah, drinking really audience weird, right? that also, it turns out, believe in climate change science, but not in medical science. Yeah. And so some of those people were very, you know, offended by what I said. You don't hear me complaining that political correctness has killed comedy <laughs> because somebody didn't like my anti-vaxxer bit. Yeah. I said what I thought. They, in return, are allowed to believe what they think. And then we just move on with our lives. Yeah. There is Stop like, complaining, you big babies. I think that's what I is, that's what I want to say. I think yeah, it is stop <laughs> complaining, but also they like don't you want to be challenged? Like the there's there are those comics out there who when you watch them them perform, you at the end of the hour you'll go, I didn't hear a single laugh. I heard a lot of applause breaks, but not yeah. a single laugh. And as a as a comedian, you're like, that's not comedy, that's a TED talk, you know. Um and I've had that thing where when I... I like that you say that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Because if, if I'm ever <laughs> doing like a, like a setup that gets people to cl- like the clap, yeah. my literal line that I always use is, hang on, there's a punchline coming. This is not a TED talk. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. so, nothing is more... And, but like I've done... Okay, like and full, full uh, admission here. I've done two TEDx talks. Yeah. They're the easiest things on earth. Right. They really are. If you, it doesn't matter what you say. Your tone has to be oh, no, 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 and it's just a slow clap building. You know, like stand-up comedy is way harder. But there is that thing of like, I was in a gig in. I just moved to Melbourne two years ago. I was at a gig in in Brunswick in like a super lefty green room, and it was myself and and um, it was uh, Mooney. And yeah. so Lawrence Mooney, my, me, and I think one or two other comics, and Limo might even have been there, in fact. And, and this was a room where the MC would go up and the other acts would go up and just say, you know, refugees are people too. And the crowd would clap. And we're like, where's the punchline? <laughs> and I got so annoyed. I went up and I'm lefty as they get normally. I became a hardcore right-wing comedian. I started saying like horrifically like offensive things in terms about the Greens party and all those things and just kind of driving the room away. And then I tried to get them to laugh. And the ones who laugh, I felt satisfied with. And even in Melbourne, like whenever I do a festival show, I'm never as happy because the audiences get really stressed about me talking about racial issues and they, they have a weird reaction to it as when I am in Perth. Because in Perth, the attitude is different, right? So in Perth, the attitude is we're all racist. Yeah, we are. We're working class people. We don't give a shit. We're all racist. And if you can make us laugh, it's an honest goddamn laugh. And that's the attitude. I've, made, I've, I've, I've performed to white supremacists who took off their T-shirts to show their Nazi tattoos the moment I got on stage. That laughter was more valuable to me than when you're in Melbourne, you talk about race, 
And they go, oh, I don't know if I can laugh at that. I've got an Indian friend. Like, he's not here. I, I don't hang out with him, but he's at work. But, you know, what if he finds out? So I don't know. It's still, it's this weird kind of thing. I'm not racist. I can't ever admit to that by laughing at this joke. And so I'm like, all right, the audiences in Melbourne are really woke. They're really, like, you know, politically correct and, and wise to the world. And they suck for comedy. <laughs> you know, like, it's just, like, Ollie's my kind of comedy sometimes. So it's just that. I think that there is a general, and look, it's, certainly not an audience-wide thing yeah but i think that we've mistaken we've like a, a feedback you often get about and i'm sure that you've got this same sort of feedback which is to, to use the anti-vaxxing as an example yeah. because i just think it's a really good example of something that my normal audience who likes all my other stuff there was just a small percentage where they're like hang on i don't like this way that you're defending you know yeah. proven medical science <laughs> this doesn't make me feel comfortable and so they would write to me and say that bit wasn't funny. And I was in my head going, well, actually, that bit's like the, the strongest part of the show. When I get to that yeah. bit, I know yeah. I've got the rest of the room. Your thing is not funny because you don't agree with it. Now, I think that's a weird perspective. I sat side stage to Tom Gleason's show during the comedy festival, and he has like a six or seven minute routine i'm a 20-year vegetarian he did a six or seven minute routine about why he actually prefers battery hens to free-range hens and it is stunningly hilarious yeah it is everything that i don't agree with bill burr 95 percent of the things that he yeah, says don't agree with it i don't agree with patrice and he's O'Neill one of the funniest specials. people in the world yeah the, the elephant in the room special by patrice O'Neill. i don't agree with anything in that <laughs> I can quote the whole special because it is genius comedy. Right. That's it. It, it. If you just have to, and you see it sometimes, even in comedians every now and then, where like you'll see a comedy, a comedian will go on Twitter and, and it's usually a young one who's new to the game and they'd be like this, I saw a senior comedian say this and it was hor- horrifically offensive. And that's probably where Kevin Bloody Wilson's attitude or gripe comes from where someone complain about that, but then they won't complain about the seven other inappropriate jokes which you're making fun of men, women, which you're making fun of black people and brown people, but they made fun of an Asian thing. So now that's offensive because the Asian comic was in the audience. So yeah, I guess it is that, where it's people get offended by what particularly attacks their belief system, not realizing that everyone else has got just got mowed down as well. You know. Okay, so let's get to uh, do you have a philosophy because we mm-hmm. touched on belief system there. And look, to be honest, as much as I'd love to talk to you about stand-up comedy for every minute <laughs> of this, the audience, I guess, would eventually tire of it. Yes. And look, even though it is my podcast, it is also for other people. So It gets inside baseball really quick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, with me it does because it's all I really would like to talk yeah. about. But I've realized there's not much of a market for that. So... Um, do you have a philosophy, uh, a life philosophy of some kind? This is going to sound so pretentious, and I really well, I apologize. So. For, I hope so. I hope it looks like, good on a poster. That's oh my god, this is—I'm <laughs> going to sound like such a wanker with this one, but here goes, and I'll explain the reason behind it in a second. Uh, it's "Haik olam memini se uabit," and that is Latin for "In the future, it will be pleasing to remember these things," and it's from Virgil's "The Aeneids." It's, a, it's an ancient lit, uh, literature um, work from, written by Virgil. And the thing it references is these characters were caught in a storm and they're about to die and they're very frightened. And one of them turns to the other and says, in the future, it'll be pleasing to remember these things. This too shall pass. We'll laugh about this later, basically. And when I was in, I went to America for university and I was there for four years. 
And because I'm a pretentious wanker, I didn't join the frats or any of those things. I joined the Literary and Debating Society because that was the thing that excited me. And so on Friday night, it was, the, it was called the Jefferson Literary Debating Society. It was like, it's the oldest literary debating society in America. And um, on Friday nights, we all get together at university, wear suits because we're just like the ultimate dorks. Like, how could you not beat us up? And genuinely debate and, and talk about literature while also getting drunker and drunker on whiskey. All right. And... Um, and so and Edgar Allan Poe was a member of the society, which is why I joined and, then, and you know, things like that. And um, that was the motto of the society. Haik olam memini se yuvabit. And it just kind of stuck with me always because when I went back to Pakistan, the philosophy in Pakistan is the same thing. The Pakistanis have the darkest sense of humor on earth, like just the darkest. People say like, oh, can Muslims laugh? There was, there was, I think there's a whole movie about looking for comedy in the Muslim world or something it's called. And it's like they can... They just don't do it publicly because every joke they have is will level a room. It is horrific. It is monstrous because their lives are pretty fucked up. Terror attack happens. There's jokes about it a few hours later. You know, your leader gets assassinated. There's jokes about it a few hours later. It doesn't matter what it is. There's jokes about it because that's the coping mechanism. That's the coping mechanism I grew up with. And that's what I still use. Um, and in, in Western society, for example, you have a thing where some things are off limits. You can't make a rape joke is what they say, but, you know, every comedian has one or two in their back in back pocket. And the, uh, the you know, the target of that joke is the rapist, not the rape victim. Um, you definitely can't make a pedophilia joke or, a, you know, child molestation joke. And every Pakistani has one because we've all been molested as kids. Like, it's that kind of a thing. It's a whole different culture. Um, and for me, that's always kind of guided my thing where no matter what's happening, I'm like, all right, and, you know, give it a month. Or give it a week or give it a day and it'll be funnier. I mean, look, I think you've actually found the, the point where we could actually connect, you know, the Christians and the Muslims yeah. with, through child molestation. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Huge like, issue there. Yeah. We just don't have a, we don't have an, a single authority you can attack. You can only attack the individual guy who did it. And there's no satisfaction in that. So that's the problem. I used to, honestly, I used to do a bit in Karachi um, where I'd get up on stage because one, like, one of the times it happened was I went to a store and I asked the guy for graph paper, you know, to draw or plot a graph on in math class. And he came out, he took the money, gave me the graph paper, reached down, just grabbed my genitals, squeezed, and walked away. And it took me years to unpack it. I was like, oh, that's what that was, you right. know? And so on stage, I'd do the stand-up bit in Karachi where I'd be like, and, and he did this, and he walked away, and I was upset, and I was hurt, and I didn't know what to say or do because no one had told me that's how commercial transactions are done. And that's why to this day, whenever I buy a Coke, I pull my zip out, and you know, I just <laughs> do that as a punchline. Huge laugh in Karachi. Right. First time I did in Australia, just silence. And then this one lady said, oh, God, are you okay? And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I read the room completely wrong. Like, I've never, never done that bit on stage again. I ever. mean, oh, yeah. God, are you okay is a pretty tough heckle to come Yeah, yeah, yeah. From. That's the sweetest, like, kindest heckle. And it's that thing where, like, oh, my gig's over. I'll put the mic back down. It's interesting to me that idea of the connection between darkness and humor. Mm -hmm. uh, it obviously, you know, you hear a lot about, uh, you know, policemen, people who work in like, you know, jobs where they're seeing death on a daily basis, soldiers, these sort of things, having quite, you know, dark and macabre yeah. senses of humor. Do you think that, that 
is that it is it is it asking too much to say that there is a direct connection between the idea that you know that you could lose your life at any time and taking life less seriously or being able to joke about the darkness do they are I, they connected i don't know because i mean there are many comedians who don't have that experience mm. and they, i mean i'm pretty sure i don't know much about bill burr's biography mm. but i don't think he's had many near-death experiences or grew up with that kind of environment i guess less than me saying does a comedian need to you know yeah. fear for their life to be a comedian i'm i'm more interested in the connection between you know the darkness and and the kind of macabre or dark humor. Oh yeah. Um. Okay. Look, I think there are every now and then I come across a comic who it seems like he had everything going for him in life, and yet his comedy is way darker than anyone else. But I think that's a manufactured darkness, right? Like making the edgy joke about you know killing the kitten and whatever. That's an that's not real darkness. Like for me. Okay, the, the the bravery of a comic. Uh, Anne Edmonds is a very good example. She's a local Melbourne comic. She's very famous. She's one of the bravest comedians I know. Yeah. Not because she's talking about anything edgy or dark. It's because the risks she takes with the structure of the joke is so much further out there than what any of us would do. And I think that's where darkness is. That's where the darkness lies in that you have that level of bravado on stage or not giving a fuckedness on stage that you're willing to just take a joke wherever it's going to go and wherever it's going to lead. And in my personal experience, the comedians who've kind of, or the people who've kind of had that experience in their life where they've maybe gone to the edge on a personal level many times or been pushed to the edge on a personal level many times will have less concerns about going to the edge again and again and again. It becomes almost like an addiction. Like, and I've I've gotten myself into trouble in the last six months because of that. Like, um, I wrote a book about Islam and everything and I published it. And then now ISIS has been threatening me for the last three months, six months, and I can't go back to Pakistan again and all that. There's no reason for any of those things it just became a thing of I'm so used to getting into trouble. I forgot that sometimes the trouble can genuinely be real and not, you know, just some people angry at you on Twitter. And so that's what happens. When you say uh, threatened by ISIS, yeah. what does that actually mean? So, um, like, so basically I, um, I'm an... I'm an atheist. I, I became an atheist a while back. And, no, you're and, not. You're a Muslim who's taken over the ABC. I've read exactly. about it on yeah, blogs yeah, yeah, yeah. and That's comment true. sections. I, I'm also that. Yeah. That's fair. Um, I'm a sleeper agent. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You bring Islam, Islam <laughs> pro-Muslim pro ideas to our ABC and you're destroying Australia. That's I mean, what it read. is Ramadan right now. And, yeah. you know, so that's, let's, <laughs> now or never, is, that's what I say about the jihad. <laughs> but I, so I, I, I wrote, a, 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 I did a stand-up comedy show finally, for the first time about being an atheist. In Pakistan, you couldn't do it. I used to go to the... I used to hint at it in Pakistan, and I used to get threatened by a few people going, stop doing that. Literally, one guy once stood up in the audience and said, stop doing that. I was like, good point. It's going to stop right now. Thank you. Very convincing argument, right? <laughs> Moved right along to the next bit. Um, I'm like, cats, huh? So, um, and then I came here, and I was like, oh, I can talk about being an atheist here. No one cares. So I started doing it. And nothing happened. Like, I talk about it on stage. Nothing happened. There's no backlash. So I, because I'm an exhibitionist or what, I did a radio series for Radio National about that. It was called the Islamic Republic of Australia, where I interviewed other Muslims and then ex-Muslims like myself and made a whole series out of it. Nothing happened. So then I wrote a book about it. And I was like, well, nothing happened. So that's cool. I can keep talking about this issue 
And the entire time, my parents in Pakistan were like, don't, don't do it. You're talking about religion. What are you doing? You know how Muslims can get about religion. Don't do this one thing. Don't worry about it. I know what I'm doing. I know how far I can take things. I know what I'm up to. Book comes out the very next day. I hadn't factored in. I'd factored in everything. I hadn't factored in the Daily Mail as an entity. You just don't. You don't know the Daily Mail exists until it's in your life, I guess. And <laughs> the next day... There was a headline on the Daily Mail. <laughs> like, it is true, though. That is the best. It is true, it though. It could not be yeah. a more 100% correct of an assessment of the role of the Daily Mail yeah. in our society. There are people out there who just, like, suddenly tomorrow and then the Daily Mail for being fat or whatever. And they're like, yeah. what happened? What did I do? I just, I was living my life. And and all they did an article about it, but they, you know, they're like, you know... Ex-Muslim says Islam is bad and left Pakistan for it and all, all these weird seven-page headlines that they have. And for some reason, Muslims around the world believe in three things. They believe in the Quran, they believe in the Hadith, which is the sayings of the Prophet, and they believe in the daily fucking mail. And they just picked it up and ran with it. Hundreds of thousands of clicks and daily mails like, this is great, let's do four more. Right. So they just kept pumping those out. That's going around the world. Now my family's getting death threats. I'm getting death threats to the point where it's like thousands a day. In my, my Facebook account shut down now in terms of like the fan page. My Twitter went offline for a while until that stuff died down. Uh, it took like three to four months. And it just kept happening every day. Death threat, death threat, like just flooding the inbox and um, people call, you know, calling for my murder. A lot of people assuming that I... Will never don't live in Pakistan anymore because it sounds like I don't, and so I will never go back there. According to the Daily Mail articles, so they're just like we're going to come to Australia and kill you and this and that. And what that means is genuinely, I can't go to Pakistan anymore. Like right. if I go back tomorrow, someone recognizes me on the street, I'm done for. So that's like a whole thing that happened. It happened like six months ago. So I'm still kind of dealing with it. And I went to a well, gig Well, obviously once. once the Daily Mail heard that they were causing you so much trouble, they would have, as they a responsible broadcaster, off, exactly. backed off completely and taken yeah. all Apologize. of Apologize. Yeah. I'm so sorry. This <laughs> was not our intention at all. We're so, we hate clicks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we would never destroy an actual human being's life based on lies just for and, some clicks. And here's the thing, like, so technically, anything they said can be argued to be true. I am an atheist. Yes. I do live in Australia. I have gotten death threats when I was in Pakistan because I used to criticize politicians. I didn't leave Pakistan because of the death threats. I'm not a refugee. And even the entire book, I never once bash Islam or criticize it. I say, you can criticize religion. Don't criticize the believers. Things like that. Daily Mail doesn't have nuance, right? So that whole thing got smoothed over into whatever they put out there. Um, and so, like, there was actually, I was at a Spleen gig once. Like, things got so weird for me at one point. Um, Spleen's a Melbourne comedy venue. And I went there to do an open mic thing. And this religious guy, Muslim-looking religious guy, walked past the entrance. And in my head, just a few weeks after this started, I was like, oh, he's here to kill me. ISIS. Because when enough people tell you ISIS wants to kill you, you believe ISIS wants to kill you. That's literally a side effect of that. So <laughs> I was like, oh, ISIS wants to kill me. And here they are to kill me. 
Afterwards, I discovered that guy was a fan and really wanted to watch me do comedy and was like, oh, Sammy Shah's doing comedy. I'll watch him. I spent half an hour in the bookstore across from Spleen watching him through the shelves. And then finally, when I went on stage, I'm still going to do the gig, right? You know, you know, yeah. Got to try out the new material. Whatever. <laughs> like, I don't know what's wrong with me. This is well, you're a stand-up comedian. Yeah, it's the ethic. You know, you got to, your gig yeah. is a gig. Yeah, um, stand-up comedian is like, it's stage time. Yeah, dude. You I'm sure there do. might be a guy in the audience who wants to murder me, but... <laughs> but I got the new material, it's on my hand. I, what yeah. am I going to do, go at home with yeah. this on my hand? So... <laughs> So, <laughs> I don't, don't want to die without trying this duck bit. <laughs> so I got up on stage and I did the entire gig with the mic cord wound around my hand, ready to fight anyone off with the mic, <laughs> which later another comic pointed out. They're like, wouldn't that then tether you to the stage and be a bad escape strategy? I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of that bit. But oh, good point. So that's literally where I was at one point. And now like a lot of it's died down every now and then it kicks up again and everything. But you know, I, I had that thing where, in retrospect, when I finally started going to therapy for it, and I started talking to my therapist, like, why did you do it? Why did you write the book? Genuine question. And I was like, I think because I almost, a part of me felt like I haven't stirred things up in a while. I haven't been in trouble in a while. I've been in trouble for so long in my life, doing comedy in Pakistan, being a journalist, coming to Australia, pissing off people sometimes by doing comedy, whatever. It just becomes a habit. It's like, it's like bungee jumping or mountain climbing. You know, you're like, why did you climb that crazy mountain? It's because it was there. Why did I talk about this issue? Because it was there. And so it's like, now I'm reassessing. Like, do I need to do this to myself and my family and everyone around me every time? Maybe not. So, yeah, I don't know, like, whether it's an addiction that should continue. Might, might make me a better comic. But is it worth it? I don't think so anymore. I think there's a real balance. Yeah. You know, I think that there is something great about like, I think people would be overwhelmingly surprised by how boring I am. Although there's probably some people listening to the podcast are like, no, no, that's exactly my <laughs> that's assessment what my review on, yeah. on iTunes said. <laughs> I was halfway through it as you said that. Now I can quote you yeah. one stuff. Uh, but I also like a little trouble. Every yeah. now and again, and as I get older, you know, it's like a night out. You know, you don't want to do it every weekend now. But, you know, every yeah. now and again, it's still good to yeah get yourself into a little bit of trouble. Cause I, mean, it, I still got it. Like it reminds kind of you and it, it makes you feel alive and it re-engages you with who you are and what's important. And then when people are being heavily critical of you, it gives you an opportunity to, you know, do a pretty frank self-assessment of yeah. who you are <laughs> and what you are. And you can agree or disagree. And sometimes that's a good thing to do. But I've never done anything that I... Look, I once... Did it, this and this is not equivalent in any way. I'm just trying to find at least yeah. something that I can. <laughs> this is how pathetic my version of being uh, not being able to go to back, back to Pakistan is. Um, I once made a joke. No, it wasn't even a joke. I once just asked on the radio because there was this story about all these bikies who'd been down at the beach, and I was just like. I said, I'm just curious to know. I just want to know what bikies wear to the beach. Yeah. Like, do bikies, like, wear, do they wear board shorts or do they wear, like, you know, like, you know, speedos? Like, what, what are they? It's a legitimate question. What do bikies wear when yeah. they go for a swim? And that's all. Anyway, so, like, one bikie got really upset and was like, he sent me a schedule of where I was doing shows and he said they were going to come down and, like, you know, beat me up or whatever. And, it, of course, it didn't eventuate. But I, I remember that there was a, a period of time where every time I saw someone who looked, slightly like a bike at a show, I, I, I panicked. Now, 
I, I never really thought that was going to be the case. I thought yeah. it was a random thread on the internet. But you but, stereotype really quickly when you're on stage, right? You're like, you're like airport security all of a sudden. You're like, I don't know, that guy's got a mustache. He's yeah. probably got a bike and a knife. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see race, uh, color, or sex, but I can spot a bikey yeah. in a crowd of a thousand people. And that guy's like, Will Anderson's my favorite comic. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. That guy's going to stab me for sure. Yeah, but you're right here in a Harley, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but what but what you're talking about is a whole different thing to that. that mm-hmm. That's th- this is like you said. You are talking about something that is a a big issue where there, there has been demonstrated violence by people who uh, you know. I mean, the cartoonists, yep. you know, in France, you know, uh, you know, for, for making fun of you know what people believe, and so. It must be interesting, I think, as an atheist, because you came to atheism, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so when was that? When, like... So, there's there's no, like, day when I woke up. It was yeah. just a gradual kind of a shift. But it basically happened once... Uh, when you're in Pakistan, you're kind of seeing the way religion is practiced and everything, um, and how violent it makes people and how bigoted it makes people and everything. You're like, okay, wait, hang on. My entire life I was told that religion is peaceful. But it's not in practice. Clearly, the people, the believers aren't being peaceful. Let me go back and read it again. And then when I read it again, it, for me, it just didn't hold up under any scrutiny. It just kind of fell apart. Like, um, it just didn't, the, the, none of the arguments it seemed to be making seemed to carry weight. It was too w- vague in the, in the pronouncements it made. So it just made more sense. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, oh, this is man-made. This, I don't see divine inspiration here. Um, I don't see a perfect being creating the universe. And then the more you study science and those kind of things, you're like, ah, all right, I get it. You know, it's not like, oh, I hate religion and down with that. It's not, you know, like the Dawkins level of vehemence against it or even the Christopher Hitchens level because my parents are religious still. They are. I understand why they have it. They have religion the same way I, like, the same way I have comic books. Like when my life's stressed and I'm in a really bad place, I need to read comic books and I just wedge out in front of a whole bunch of comics and I'll feel relaxed. It's fantasy, it's escapism. When their life's stressed, they'll pray. It's escapism. It's, some people turn to alcohol or whatever. It's this the same impulse. I get it. Um, it just didn't hold up for me anymore under scrutiny. It wasn't... The, you know, there are many good things that people get from religion. Yeah. Like, absolutely, I have no doubt about that. And... Uh, I'm not in the business of like taking away those good things. Exactly. You yeah. Know? Like in the same way as, you know, um, you know, I like, uh, you know, my football club. But if my football club started deciding that we had to murder people who barrack for other football clubs, <laughs> I'd be like, well, you know what? Yeah. I just liked when it was like about going to the games. And... That's more like the British like yeah. soccer thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. The way <laughs> I'd they have to do be it. like, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm as into this anymore. <laughs> Are we all still into this? Is everyone up for the yeah. killing the other teams? Uh, but when you're in a place where you've you've come to atheism yourself, mm-hmm. but ironically, you're now in this place, Australia, where you're being attacked on one side by you know uh, religious you know yep. Muslims like you know, extremists, extremists, yeah, extremists, yeah, you know, yeah. Muslims, and yet on the other side, you're being accused of being, being the Muslim. very <laughs> sort of person who is actually threatening to kill you that must yeah. be such a confusing position to be here it's it's a thing well it's a thing which in on one level it was there even before like the whole book and isis thing happened because i was like an atheist in my heart and 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 
And the, the people are like, you're a Muslim. I'm like, I'm not really. They're like, you're a Muslim. I'm like, I wrote a book that says I'm not. They're like, you're a Muslim. I'm like, All right, whatever. <laughs> and so I kind of get that. It's, it's, for me right now, it's more amusing than anything else. You know, it's that thing of like, I, I do radio at the ABC and people write in and they're like, why, why is this Muslim on radio? And that I noticed, though, is a trend. It's not like it's like right now they're angry at me for being Muslim. But the real anger still remains that why am I an immigrant? Why do I have an accent? Why am I not white? You know, like that's the real anger. So I feel like because in us in Melbourne right now, you've got people are pivoting. They're going, they're done with the Muslim thing. And now they're going after the African migrants. And then once that's done, they'll go after someone else. And, and that pivot is kind of happening. You can see it. So I, so for me, it's not, I, I don't stress about it anymore. It, one of the good things, I suppose, that you can say that being threatened by ISIS for a whole lot of, lot of time does is it makes all the other threats seem really trivial. So you can genuinely say, oh, they made my life better. <laughs> like now when someone's like, fuck off, we're full, go back where you came from. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. Like, you, like really, that's all you got? <laughs> like, that's, I've got that guy doing yeah. photoshops of my head being cut off. That's the best you can do. So then it makes it a little easier, you know? I mean, I guess there is that. I guess yeah, there yeah. is. Like, I mean, yeah, you can't go. I can't go back to where it came from. Oh, yeah. By the way, that option's closed <laughs> yeah, right now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a book and now yeah. ISIS want to murder me. And I'm you sorry. like why I wrote that anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there is that whole thing that's still. <laughs> yeah. I suggest that the problem is that many other people who are criticizing you for being a Muslim aren't also big book readers. Yeah. So yeah, they yeah. might not be across that. I actually, the book was because the book is called The Islamic Republic of Australia. I just thought the title was funny. And so Pauline Hansen put it on her Facebook page. And she's like, look at this book. Like, what is it saying? She wouldn't read it to find out what it's saying. No. So all her fans are like briefly attacking me as well. And they're like, this is like, stop trying to make Australia Muslim. And I'm like, what are you like? And then people who'd read the book. Literally just judging a book by its cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, pe and so people, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. How, like, how much more stereotypical can you be? But the funny thing that happened was people who are fans of her page, but also lived in country towns across WA where I gigged for four years and knew me, liked me for that, would then jumping on her page to defend me. So they'd be like someone who's like, black people are bad, but back off from Sammy. He came to Kalgoorlie that time. We had dinner after the gig. He was really funny. Come on. But, you know, don't make fun. Don't pick on him, guys. And I was like, this is a weird overlap in life. Like, I never thought I'd be in this peculiar place, you know? Uh, it's interesting though because it does genuinely that aspect of it which I hadn't quite thought of yeah is I think that's where things are particularly interesting because like the country thing is actually you know what I, I want to talk to you about the country thing yeah. I might have a pause because I told you I'd need a bathroom Go break in it. the middle of it so I'm going to no do worries. that freshen my cup of tea and then we'll come back I yeah. want to talk to you about the country uh, my, my name is Sammy Shah um, well okay actually my name is Sammy Shah uh, that's how it's pronounced, but I let people call me Sammy because they're, you know, I, I don't want them to be afraid of the fact that I might be a terrorist or something, and there's no, let's be honest, there's no terrorist named Sammy, just Sammy the terrorist, pathetic name. Um, but it's true, I am from Pakistan, I moved to Australia very recently, like two, three months ago, and everyone in Perth has been wonderful, we just came to Perth, and um, you guys have been great, everyone's been really welcoming and friendly. They do ask me a weird question, uh, which I'm not sure I understand. Uh, everyone asks me when I tell them, you know, they go, where do you, where have you come from? And I say, I've come from Pakistan. And then they go, um, how'd you get here? <laughs> and, and I tell them the truth. I, I took the boat a few times. I got sent back. <laughs> uh, and then I, you know, 
know, but I collected enough miles to upgrade to Qantas and actually <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to talk to you about the country because mm-hmm. I'm interested in... Uh, I, I often have theories, but I also love if, you know, someone who's actually had more experience of this yeah. can tell me that I'm completely misguided or wrong. So I'll be interested to hear what your response to this is. I've long held a theory that uh, country people, while they have a reputation for being... Because I'm from the country, mm-hmm. very, very country, small country, you know, road my grandparents were, you know, sort of lived on, my dad's lived on his whole life, 250 people. Um, parents, very open-minded, but open-minded in a world where you're not exposed to, you know, I didn't know when I was, I'm sure I knew gay people when I was growing up, but I wasn't aware that I knew gay people yeah. when I was growing up. But I, the the town that I grew up, I have told the story a few times about the fact that I would have characterized it as being homophobic because the way that people spoke about you know, gay people or the cliches or whatever that I had um, been told when I was growing up felt homophobic. And then a mate of mine, uh, who it turns out was gay, moved back to Hayfield with his boyfriend and they opened a cafe in town and it was the best little cafe in town. And then suddenly every single person in Hayfield would have their birthday party or their function or their morning coffee at this place. And then suddenly they're the most beloved couple in town. And, you know, I would not consider that to be a homophobic place at all. It was the same with, you know, the minute a Sudanese kid came to town, I'll tell you what, they get two knocks on their door that day, one from the local football club and one from the local basketball club going, hey, do you want to come down (laughs) and join, you know, this is who we are. Because you're in a small enough place that there is a necessary level of integration into a community. Whereas often in the city, and it's happened for generations, uh, people tend to, and it's a very natural human mm-hmm. thing. It happens in America. I mean, like I always I laugh when people like they come over here, they hang out with their own people. I was like, you ever been to Earl's Court? In yeah. London? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, anytime. Any, ever been any, to West Hollywood? In any LA? weekend out in Melbourne, you know. it's just groups of like in the CBD, it's groups of white people hanging out separate and groups, right. yeah, like that. So, yeah. but the, but with that can come that idea of going that you don't need to necessarily be integrated in the broader community. Yeah. Whether it's a choice of the group or whether it's a choice of the broader community in a country town there is a sort of necessary level of integration that almost... Anyway, that's that's what I want to say. Yeah. But now I know. Tell us a bit about what, like, how okay. you found yourself in the country and now what your experience from the other side is because mine's always from, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm just Mr. <laughs> you know, I look like everybody else here. It's a I'm, theory. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's a theory. Yeah. So I'd love to hear like, right. actually the, what your real perspective is. There is that. genuinely some truth to that. A lot of truth to that. That they, they are that open-minded when they're exposed to the thing that they need to be open-minded about. They're not open-minded many times about things that they just didn't know. Um, uh, my favorite example is... There, it was a, f- a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, who had a farm in the town I lived in called Northam in WA. And how big was Northam? Uh, Northam's around uh, 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's massive. It used to be a, huge, a big industrial town. Now it's more of a farming community. There's still small industry there. Um, the latest shift that's happening there is that the brethren, the exclusive brethren, and the Plymouth brethren, which is a Christian conservative mm. cult, I guess the word gets bandied about, is taking over the town in terms of like that's where they're largely moving, setting up a mega church. Um, I was their webmaster for a while. <laughs> it's a story. So, <laughs> um, but what happened was 
he and I were hanging out and he started laughing and telling me the story about how the day before Tony Abbott had said that Muslim terrorists might attack Australia at any time. So we must be careful and cautious. And that night, his wife on their 4,000 acre farm started locking the windows and doors for the first time. And he's like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, Tony Abbott said Muslims might attack. And he's like, Sam, Sammy's a Muslim. Like, you think he's going to attack? She's like, oh yeah, I never even thought about that. <laughs> right? So like, it's little things like that. There's so much to unpack in that story. There's a trust in government that still exists outside, that only exists in country towns. There's, a, there's the idea that there's the other and what the other can do to you. And you don't realize sometimes that the other is who you know already. And, you know, like they might've been hugely racist 10, 15 years earlier, but there's an Indian brother-in-law that they have now. So they now they have an Indian in their life and that's whole thing that's opened up. And then one of their nephews is gay. So now they're like gay people and it's those, but they'll also say, they'll say Pufta and they'll also still say the N word many times and those kind of things. And you're just like, I don't know how to do this. Like one of like, honestly, some of my closest friends in Australia are people in that country town. They will say the most horrendously racist things. They've believed many racist things. At the, uh, you know, when I got there and also if I'm in a fix tomorrow, they're the first people I'll call because they're the ones I know will have my back. And that's kind of the way that bond works in that they do, it is a small community. Like when I moved into town, the first thing that happened was everyone was like, who is he? Why is he like that? And then within like a year's time, there's one time um, my daughter and I were walking on the small town strip, the high street of the town. And this car pulled by, it was full of young guys and they weren't from town. You could tell just by the car. Oh, it's too flashy. And they roll down the window and they yell, Curry Mancher! And the butcher's apprentice, four shops up, came out, stood in the middle of the road with his knife out. And he's like, reverse and apologize. And so like they sped out of town and everything. That butcher's apprentice and I only know each other from that interaction every day when I go down and buy sausages or whatever. But we're also, he knows I'm from Northam. I know he's from Northam. You got to have pride, sense of ownership. And like, I'm a big believer that you got to send immigrants to small towns. Change the visa rules to send more immigrants to small country towns. It was a very small visa ban that I came in on. Not many people get the same experience. They'll put down roots in the towns. They'll invest in the towns. The towns will get to know them and learn that there is a wider world out there. And it'll be good for Australia that way. The the money they spend helps the country. Like This is definitely something that I'm very passionate about. And look, there are ways of doing this that are a positive way of doing it and Mm -hmm. probably ways of doing it that are a negative way. Exactly. You don't want to prescriptively send someone to somewhere they don't want to be and you don't want to prescriptively send someone to a community where that person's not going to be welcome. Exactly. But there are ways of incentivizing both the community and the people to go to the community. Yeah. Like in a way that is positive for both rural Australia, which is dying and needs an injection of new people and Mm -hmm. new money and all these sort of things, but also gives these people an opportunity to establish themselves as part of a community and part of Australia and help have their own patch of land, have their own space in the world, you know, have room to grow and, you know, learn about the country. And, you know, I think there's so many, you know, distinct advantages of it for both sides of the equation, if done right. Exactly. And there's one community that kind of figured out how to do it a while ago. I don't know if it was part of an incentivization program or what, but every country town across Australia, population 12 or population 5,000 or 55,000 has a Chinese restaurant. 
And that Chinese restaurant has been there for four fucking generations. <laughs> Their family has been there for four generations. The kids are seven years old. They're working behind the counter, which is probably not legal, but everyone knows what's happening. Whatever, it's fine. But also... You know, that's just what it is. So you've got this bizarre little community of Chinese Australians who know only the small town country rural experience. Their kids are probably in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide and Perth now, but they grew up in those towns. The town knows them. They know each other. The kids all shop together. They all play footy together. All of that stuff. It worked at one point. So I do believe that it can work again. I don't know. I have a huge fondness for small country town life. It's that thing that I kind of still miss sometimes. I, want, I love living in Melbourne. I'm happy I'm in Melbourne. But I would not. And when I was in that town, by the way, I was miserable. I used to complain all the time. I was right. whinging nonstop. I'd made fun of the town. All of those things. But is this not a great practical example of the philosophy that you yeah. quoted earlier? Which is, you know, the idea that those times now, yeah. now that you're past those times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I sometimes, look back the, on them. sometimes the times that you are most important are the ones that you were sitting around going, fuck, I wish I wasn't doing yeah, this. Yeah, this yeah, exactly. stupid place. When am I going to get out of here? <laughs> I call a memory, so you love it, keep saying it. Like, is that, but I, I don't know, I just have that thing of, in, a, in that town, A, things are cheaper. You know, as an immigrant, you don't have much money. Right. So all of a sudden, you can afford a house. Whereas in Melbourne, just seven people in a tiny apartment. Um, you know, that option is there. You also get a lot... Things are a lot slower. I used to drive to Perth to do comedy. So I'd drive every day in the evening. It'd be a two-hour drive down to Perth, do comedy, two-hour drive back. You do a lot of thinking when you're driving for that long. WA is huge. I discovered that I... You know, I used to do a podcast while driving. I used to, like, I came up with book ideas, which I then wrote while driving. My comedy became good because I thought about it while driving. Like, that kind of stuff. And it just gives you time to understand Australia better. If I lived only in Melbourne, if I came straight here, I'd meet the Pakistani community, I'd hang out with them, I'd meet some of the comedy community. Everyone I know would have the same philosophical, political mindsets. I... I don't know. I, I have a fondness for conservatives. I have a fondness for like casual racists. I have a fondness for, you know, one nation voters because of those things. I mean, I fundamentally disagree with them on almost everything, but I know that there's an overlap where they are still willing to talk to you, which I think what, you know, in America, you see what happens when they stop talking to each other. That's what happens is when the, when the Democrats and the Republicans are not even in the same families anymore. Whereas in Australia, you know, your dad will vote liberal always because he's always voted liberal. You're going to vote green because you, you know, you're a lefty young person, whatever. And that's fine. That's a good, healthy thing. The moment we start losing that, that's when it'll go really bad. There used to be, uh, and maybe I'm idealizing a time, uh, but I think there used to be a feeling in Australia that mm -hmm. I, some things were off limits. You know, you know, they the, before the John Howard dog whistle over boat people, yeah. you know, uh, you know, illegals, um, and you know, I hope everyone can hear the, <laughs> yeah, the air quotations yeah. in my voice. <laughs> um, but uh, there, there was a kind of understanding that the minute with that we opened that can of worms, we could never come back from you know what it was that that dog whistle creates. Yeah. Uh, there used to be a kind of understanding that everybody was trying to do the same thing. You know, that we believe, for example, that we should have the best education system in the world. And then this side would argue, well, this is how we have the best education system, private schools and universities. And this side would go, well, I think it's free university education and everything should be a... And then you would have a contest of ideas, but you would essentially still have the understanding 
that both sides were trying to achieve the same thing. Mm-hmm. What seems to have happened in America now is there doesn't seem to be even that agreement between the two sides that they're trying to achieve the same thing. And I fear that that is also what is slowly happening in Australia. I've seen, I've seen evidence of it for sure, where both sides are not trying to achieve the same thing. You know, both sides think they are. They think they think working towards the betterment of their idea of Australia. But a lot of the times, it's, it's this weird trust in politicians that I don't understand. Right. So like they will genuinely people on the left and right will genuinely trust and admire their politicians. They will believe in their political representatives. Not really. Have you ever met politicians? Like remember that kid in your class who was like who was class president and class, you know, high school captain or whatever. He was always a dick. Like no one liked him. He was never good at anything. He was only good at, you know, just knowing what to say at the right time to get the most out of it. That's who becomes a politician. And and you're kind of seeing it now, like the Liberal Party and the Labour Party don't represent the Australian public. They represent the investors, the corporations, things like that. It's this weird Americanization of politics that's happening so quickly where both sides of the debate are, or the right and the left are fight, in the public are fighting with each other over what they think Australia should be. Um, the source of information are flawed on both sides. And then their political representatives actually don't represent either side. They represent their own thing, which is a whole corporatization. And, and we're all kind of merrily, you know, watching it all slide down towards the, that thing. Trump isn't the problem in America. It's the corporate investment. Like, that's what, you know, even like Dave Anthony, whose opinion I respect hugely on this stuff, always said it was like the opiates. It was the gun laws. It was those things. It wasn't, you know, a buffoon president or something like that. That was the real issue here. No, there's, we've got to the point where there is only one party and it is the business party. Yeah. And part of that is about the nature of, you know, how expensive the electoral cycle is, right? Like we're locked into this system where they, you know, need people to pay for, you know, how expensive the idea of getting elected is. And there is no way of actually just raising that money in an ordinary fashion. So you have to be in the pockets of big business. I find this country's respect. You are the first person I've ever really talked to about it. And like who seems to have the same opinion as me. In fact, I've often kept my opinion a little to myself. People will often identify me as being like, you know, everyone wants, as as we've already discussed with you, everyone wants to see in you, you know, actually what they are just trying to prosecute themselves. Sometimes it'll be the same columnist uh, ascribing two completely different things to you for the sake of his own argument. Um, So, uh, I have been accused of being, uh, you know, a, a, a Labour, you know, mm-hmm. like stooge, a Liberal stooge, a, you know, Greens stooge. The funniest thing of all is I was raised, you know, in a family that has probably voted national every single right. election yeah. they've ever voted in their life. The only politicians I ever met when I was growing up were National Party politicians who would be at our home because my dad would be involved in local, you know, milk boards or whatever the politicians would come and visit. So I hadn't I, I and I grew up in a family where the idea of like, you know, greenies and these sort of things to farmers were the they were the enemy. Yeah. You know, they were and so the I I have no respect for politicians at all. Of any description. There are individual politicians within that that I do. But as a general profession and and as a way that profession goes about its business, I have nothing but 
disdain most of the time for most of the people who participate in politics. And I find it crazy that other people, and again, people who believe things that I believe, they'll hate yeah, the people on the other side and think yeah. they're all, you know, show business for ugly guy, people, eh? but their guy is a genius. You're like, nah. That's, I think that Malcolm Turnbull's unique in that way, for example, that nobody likes him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I think he's achieved the one thing that I always wa- wondered why. Like, is that no one likes him. Like, the right don't like him, the left don't like him, the middle don't like all that. He's, you know... It's just, it is an admirable quality, I think. And, and I it guess does he's make finally me... united us all. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and it's, yeah, it is, I, I don't understand how that's worked out for him so far, but it has clearly not hurt him in this profession. I guess everyone's so polarized about everyone else that they'll settle for the milk toast. Um, Maybe he's the, um, you know, the alien that arrives at the end of Watchmen. Yeah, you know? <laughs> he unites us all. You know? yeah. But I, there, there was a great uh, Dave Chappelle line where he was on uh, Stephen Colbert. And Stephen Colbert was like, well, how do you make sense of America right now? And Dave Chappelle was like, look, you've got Trump. No one likes him, right? I mean, like, a lot of people don't like him. But also those people are more engaged in civic discourse than I've ever seen before. They know about, you know, governmental policy. They know about you know, limitations on the presidency and all of that stuff. They didn't know about that six months ago. And then when the next guy comes around, the other side gets engaged in civil discourse. And what happens is, his analogy was, which I really liked, was you move forward with both feet. Right foot, then left foot, then right foot, then left foot, then right foot. Then left, and that's how you keep moving forward. So sometimes you just think, oh, that foot's getting more time than I am. The other time, the other way. But actually, you're still moving in one direction. I don't know if America's achieving that. I think we still are. I definitely think Australia has that thing where we're still definitely moving forward. Uh, not at the speed some of us would like. Some of us would say we're moving forward too fast and all that. But the direction is still the correct direction. Um, I, I just, yeah, it's just that... Stop believing that your side is the right side and the other side is the wrong side because both sides are actually a lot more similar than you'd realize. It's just it's unnecessary polarization. It just doesn't make any sense when you actually look at the facts and figures on the ground. I, li- I like the way that you talk about that a lot because it's, it's well, I like it because it, because it, 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 I agree with <laughs> you it. Know, there we go. <laughs> My next bit you're going to hit. <laughs> but, Vegetarians um, are fuckers though, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, one of the things that I've said is I don't, actually don't really often don't care who the politicians are. I think that the government should change over every two election cycles. Yeah. Your perfect scenario is that you, they're in there for two election cycles, which gives someone long enough to have a kick out changing some things and putting some stuff in place and having a long-term vision for the mm-hmm. country. And then it also means you get a bit of experience in there. The cycle goes by. What tends to happen is the problem is is when a government hangs on one term too many, uh, you don't have any new talent on one side. You get you're rorted in an election. Then the other side, who's got no experience because they've been out of power for all that time, suddenly are in with this massive majority. It swings way too far that way. They don't it's, know how to handle they it. They don't know yeah. how to handle it. Yeah. You basically need this kind of if we could just agree that you kind of get eight years at it. And then we changed it over. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like the fact that Australian government is three years. Pakistani is five. And right. what happens is that's why we have so many coups all the time. There's a coup because everyone's like, by year four, you're like, I, I hate him. I, hate, I don't care. I want, I want him out. And that's what happens. 
three years is perfect. We had the problem in Australia where three years for suddenly was like too long. Yeah. We were like, I need one to, year was too long. Six months. That's good. Yeah. That's what like we've settled in. I think, thank God. But um, but I, I remember there's an uh, 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 what's it called Barack Obama thing where he was saying once where he's like, I now know how to be a good president. Unfortunately, it's at the end of my eight years. Right. And I think that's that's why you're, well, you're right. It's because now they know at the end of the eight years how to really manipulate the system to match their ideals. And you don't want that. No. You want a, a leader who's figuring it out and can only do what the limitations let them do. And then after that, get out. Uh, look, we have to finish up, but I yeah. could actually talk to you all day. This has, been, <laughs> this has been great fun. Thank you for doing this. It's been um, uh, excellent. Uh, there were so many things I actually wanted to talk to you about that we just haven't got to. So no, hopefully we me, can yeah. sit down and have a chat another time. But... Uh, uh, there's a couple of things that we've touched on already today that I wouldn't mind, mm-hmm. you know, circling back on. And one of them is the way your voice sounds. Yeah. Because you work in an industry now, radio in particular. I mean, I think on the stand-up stage, you know, we're more and more used to, you know, people speaking with accents and people, D- you know. Dilruk was our, was our ambassador. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the truth of it is that I think that, you know, stand-up has always been a place where people, I mean, look from... Uh, uh, what's uh, oh, now? I'm having a completely mental blank. What's the the Russian comedian who went to America? Oh yeah, Yakov Smirnov. Yakov Smirnov. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, comedy has actually often been a great way for people to, you know, the outsider un- has to have the, the role. outsider, yeah. right? Yeah. An outsider's perspective is actually a very powerful comedic mm-hmm. perspective. You know, it's you can go into a place and notice something that is unusual that no one else notices is unusual because we have become so used to it yeah. that we think it is usual. Right? Yeah, 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 it's, exactly. That's perfectly articulated. It's it. an exactly. interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, so comedy's always been a good place for that. But now you find yourself doing ABC Breakfast Radio, mm-hmm. which is, uh, a, a, it's on the ABC, which is an organisation that is owned by all Australians. It's and a national feels, broadcast. feels like it's owned by all Australians. Uh, and that can be a very good, but also sometimes a tough thing because people are not are not afraid to express their disappointment in you. Mm-hmm. Um and because it's the ABC, it's not as actually as easy for you to d- dismiss that. The yeah. ABC has to acknowledge and take on board those points of view and you know, re- respond to their audience and respect their audience and all these sort of things. But one of the more interesting criticisms mm-hmm. that has come your way has been just about how you sound yeah. on radio. And I'd never really considered... This might sound like the most naive. Sometimes I say incredibly naive things. And and I hope that in saying them, it kind of highlights just that, like, you know, suddenly when you realize how naive you've been or that you've never really thought about yeah. it, this will sound ridiculous. But I don't consider that you or Dill or Ronnie Chang or anybody like Ivan, mm-hmm. I, I don't really think of any of you as having accents, right? Well, because so I you don't hear because, it or? Well, I just don't really think about it. Okay. Like, okay. I don't actually think about the idea that, because, you know, you know a lot of people who speak mm-hmm. in different ways, but I think also it's to do with the fact that I have seen your face and that I connect your face and your words. You can contextualize the voice. I can contextualize it, yeah. right? And it started to occur to me that suddenly for, you know, this audience, they're just hearing the voice without perhaps yes. the association with the face and that can probably be a different thing. But then it, the real thing that it made me think about, and this is the, where the particularly naive thought comes into it, which was, I, 
I just realized how unusual it is for someone who sounds like you to have a regular job yeah. in our media. Yeah. Like it's just... It's insane. It's completely it's, unusual. It's very... And I know exactly how much it is that because firstly, before I got the job, um, I, they did send me to a, a speech therapist and the, the they said it was to get me to slow down because I talk too fast, which I agree with and it helped for that. That was the lesson one. Lesson two to 16 somehow became about getting a bit of the brown out of my voice, which is the way I describe it. It was about flattening out my natural Pakistani accent. And they can say it was because I was not easily understood, but I think also my personal belief is a level of it was also to provide comfort to the audience. Because if I talk fully the way I do as a Pakistani, when I like when as a fresh immigrant when I first came here, it was jarring for radio listeners, you know. And and I'd been on, I'd done a few spots here and there, and the feedback was always like, "What is this?" People, I actually had messages going, "He doesn't represent me." And I was like, "How? What does it matter? What my voice sounds like? How do I have to represent you? Why should I represent you?" And I didn't, I didn't understand a lot of it. And then they're putting me through the speech therapy lessons. I'd never realized how much self-esteem and ego is tied up into voice and accent. That was a revelation to me. But also, once I started doing the radio show, um, I'd get stopped every few weeks by... First, there's a Sikh man who was an old Sikh man who'd been here for 40 years. After that, was an Irish woman. They have been stopped by British people, by just immigrants who've been here for generations even... But immigrants, and they were, they've stopped, and like once or twice they cried, and it was really strange, and they said, I've never heard, I didn't know someone with our voice could be on air. And I realized, oh, you're, you're right, that, because you don't hear this. You don't hear someone with an immigrant voice on air, even though Melbourne's an immigrant city. Right. You know, massive percentage of the population I mean, maybe calling the cricket. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. That's the it. only time you would ever hear somebody with an accent like yours is if yeah. like Pakistan are touring in the cricket. And, and like, Ramiz Raja is there yeah. doing the guest hosting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. That's the only time. But other than that, it just, it, it, it was a weird thing. So I think from the ABC's perspective, it was a conscious choice. Um, I like to think, oh, no, I got the job because I'm damn good at my work. But also I got the job, I think, to a degree because of the way I sound. Um, I'm, yeah, I, you but know, it, you've got to imagine that for every bit of the way you sound helping you get the yeah. job, there's got to be an equal amount that the way you sound would hinder you yeah, of absolutely. getting that job. And and if I'm shit at it, I won't have it tomorrow, no matter how much of an immigrant I sound like. Yeah. So there is that aspect. But I am very... I'm pretty sure one of those 90s comedians could do your accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a great <laughs> uncanny impression. Yeah. The, and, 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 you know, if nothing else, they'll give it to Dill. You know, like it's just, there's like two, three of us anyway. Um, Susie Yusuf got herself out of the game by being born in Australia. She fucked up. So um, we have the, that, that conversation is there where I'm aware of my accent and I'm aware of how it goes to people. I'm also aware of how much I need to flatten it a little bit so that I am more legible to Australian audiences because when I'm on stage, you can see my face. Contextualize what I'm saying. When I'm on radio, it's just the voice. Um, to some, but some people have that reaction. They've had, I've had people say, I can't listen to him. I don't understand him. And maybe they don't. I, I find it hard to believe. I'm not that illegible, but you know, I, some people have that genuine reaction where they're like, he's not, but they have the reaction to women. You know, they'll be like, I can't listen. It's a woman talking. I can't listen anymore. So it is just a lack of apathy or empathy. Um, not, not apathy, empathy that's causing them to feel that way. 
Um, but yeah, the fact that I have this gig, I do from time to time go, this is insane. I'm very aware of the fact that I could not have gotten this on commercial television or radio. It is only the ABC that would have put me on air. So I'm grateful for that. It, with that, I imagine, comes a, a, probably an extra level of, you know, feeling like you are responsible for, you know, I mean, not maybe representing yeah. is the wrong word, but like, you know, because it hasn't happened before. Yeah. Like, you're a pioneer of a type in that regard, at least for... You know, I'm not saying I know that what you mean, though, yeah. but for for that, it's a big deal. And with that, I imagine comes a feeling of an extra responsibility that you know, in the same way as like you know, the only way in women, you know, in the old days in comedy, I always try to bring it back so that there's like, I it feels like I'm, but uh, so in comedy, you know, you'd have a woman on on the bill, and mm-hmm. if the woman was no good, people would think women aren't funny. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So there, there must be an element of that. For you, where you're like, I am, I unfortunately, and you shouldn't have to. You should only have to represent yourself. But, but must... you know, th- that luxury isn't there, and yeah. I completely understand that. There's, a, I had a meeting with management, like all of ABC's radio producers and directors and everyone, and the managing board was there. They asked me to give a small talk on what it's like to be a minority in Australian media, and and I said, you know what? Thanks for giving us the opportunity to succeed because I know that's something we fought for. Um, I won't, I'm new to the fight. There've been people here who've been fighting for it for generations, um, and now it's starting to happen. And and I said, don't give me the opportunity to succeed though, because I can, I'll get that. I'll I'm you know I've been fighting my whole life. We've had to do this. Everyone has. You work hard. You get what you want. Give me the opportunity to fail. Give people of color the opportunity to fail. Let us screw up as much as the white host who preceded me screwed up. And then take me off air if I've reached that limit. Because if you take me off air the first time I screw up, the third time I screw up even, that'll damn the whole community that I'm inadvertently representing. But if, you know, if I get drunk and turn up outside a women's, you know, bikini waxing salon and start yelling at all the women as they're coming out and they still don't take me off air, I know I'm being treated as an equal right now. They've had, I've read a lot about that recently uh, around women directors in Hollywood. You know, yeah. the idea is like, you know, Wonder Woman being successful isn't the great moment for women directors, even though that's fantastic. It's when uh, a woman is able to make three shitty films in a row and still, and still get, get hired for the next one. Yeah. Then, then it's actually in the yeah. same way. Like, yeah, the, a woman should have as many chances to fail as Steven Seagal yeah. and, still, <laughs> and still get a film role. Then it'll be equal. You know, like, that's it. Uh, mate, this has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. We need to finish up. Uh, but um, uh, thank you so much for doing the show. Hey, plugs. People can hear you, of course, on uh, ABC Radio yeah. in Melbourne. That's Is there right. a podcast of the show or something? Uh, or can I mean, they the, listen online? They if can listen online else? on the ABC yeah. Radio Melbourne website. Okay. Um, there's also a podcast I'm doing these days with uh, Cal Wilson and Alice Frazier. Alice Frazier's idea is called Troll Play. And I, uh, I, re- I listened to the first episode the other day. It's uh, you guys essentially uh, looking at internet comments and... Just the the, the dark corners of the internet. It's just us being filthier than you thought Cal Wilson could ever be. (laughs) And uh, it was so filthy, the ABC had to test it in front of a market audience for the first time. The first podcast ever had that, (laughs) uh, to have that. Uh, It's just a fun, dumb thing we did. And uh, that's coming out these days. And then I'm on Twitter, uh, at Samisha, S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H, trying not to send death threats or photoshops of my head being cut off. 
I'd appreciate that. And of course, your book uh, is the Islamic Republic. That's of the, the, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, and um, there's a novel called Fireboy, um, which is a genre fiction fantasy novel, and that's out as well. Um, yeah, and those are in some bookstores sometimes now, <laughs> you know, depending on how big the remaindered bin is. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. <laughs>